0: Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and um, I am the, uh, the lead pastor here, and I am glad you are uh, joining us this morning. Before we jump into uh, our our study, uh, we get to do a, a child dedication. Yay. So, Tienemans, come on up. Um, I want to introduce you guys to the Tienemans. So, child dedication is... Um, one of the many milestones in um, really the, the long journey of being parents, um, this is our way of trying to celebrate a key moment in the life of a child, um, and it's our way of coming together as a church to celebrate with this family their desire uh, to, to raise um, their child in a way that they come to know God and love God. So let me introduce you guys to the Tienemans, um, uh, Jared and Gabby, say good morning to them. And, uh, and little Will. Hi, Will. Hi. That's Will up there too. Oh, eating a shoe. They are always tasty. Um, so, Proverbs 22.6 tells us that uh, when you train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. And, and you guys have heard me say a thousand times when we study Proverbs, we're not looking at promises, we're looking at principles. And the principle behind that verse is this. When you train up a child, that, that Hebrew word for train literally means to shape their appetite. And the idea there is if you shape a child's appetite for what, is, for what is good, for love, for grace, for the gospel, that will continue to influence them throughout their life. doesn't mean they'll always make the right choices. doesn't mean they'll always, uh, they won't have to learn some hard lessons. But it does mean that, that our parenting has a profound impact uh, on our child for the rest of their lives. And so um, this morning, uh, Jared and Gabby are coming up to say that, that they are, in a sense, dedicating their child to God because He is a gift to them, uh, but also dedicating themselves to the best of their ability. First, drinking from the fountain of grace, finding uh, dignity, renewal, hope, courage, <laughs> um, finding strength when you feel like you're out of strength. Patience when you're out of patience. Uh, love always, right? It's going there first and then continually leading Will to the same place, right? That he might develop a taste for the incredible grace of God, right? And we as a church are coming together to say that we're walking on this journey with them, that they are not isolated in this process. We, we walk with our families. We, we, we share, in a sense, the discipleship responsibility, um, of, of encouragement and and pointing one another to that fountain, that uh, our hope can be renewed, our courage can be strengthened, our joy can be increased. So we have a um, a relaxed liturgy that we kind of walk through, um, and so we'll start with the Tienemans. Um If you guys commit yourselves to raising will uh, in light of the gospel, um, running first to the grace of God for yourselves, and then also. Um, continually leading him to the same place that he might learn to know who God is in such a way that he comes to love him. Um, if, if you dedicate yourself to this path, say, I do. Awesome. Church, if you're ready to commit to walking alongside this family, to celebrating with them the joys of parenthood and walking with them uh, through the challenges and difficulties of it, encouraging them, strengthening them, being a, a source of joy to them, um, say, we do. we do. Praise God. Let me pray for you guys first. I'm going to ask uh, the Teen community group and family members, come on up and let's surround them with community um, because that's what this is all about. And so come on up and uh, you're going to lay hands on them and I'm going to pray for them. So if you're in their community group uh, or if you are a part of their family, um, make your way up and... Um, Let's surround Jared and Gabby and little Will and um, celebrate with them and, uh, and pray for them. All right. If you can't get a hand on them, get a hand on somebody who's got a hand on them. Right? And let's, uh, let, me, let me pray for these guys. Um, Father, I thank you for the team, I thank you um, for uh, the incredible gift that they are to each other, um, Jared and Gabby, and then just the, the beautiful gift that you've given them in will, that you've given them the opportunity of not only exploring the blessing of grace for themselves, but now they have this incredible opportunity of learning the blessing of grace for their son. Um, I pray, Lord, that, that in the joy... You will um, help them be anchored in their hope and in the anxiety and in the difficult moments, they will be anchored in the courage of knowing, Lord, that you are for them, that you go ahead of them, that you have marked them for your glory. And Lord, we pray for Will that you would set him apart for your use, that you would set him apart, that he might be a man who loves you and knows how deeply he is loved by you, that he might be rooted in humility and strong in love. That he might be a giant among men. We pray, Lord, this rich blessing on Will and on this family, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, thank you. Let's clap them off, you guys. All right, you guys, let's grab our Bibles. We're continuing our sermon series called Every Tribe, Every Tongue, uh, where we are looking at the gospel race and the church. And uh, this morning we're going over to Ephesians 2 two, and uh, we're going to be swimming in some deep waters today. I hope you're ready, but we're going to Ephesians chapter two. Um, If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you, and in our Bibles, we're going over to page 976. Now, when I first started working toward this sermon series, um, I described it a little bit as as my attempt to dance through the minefield um, because I know this is a loaded topic. I know people are coming with a history, and people are coming with ideas, and people are coming with defensiveness, and, and possibly hurts, and fears, um, and, and I've got some people over here that that are are, are worried that, that, you know, if I start talking about racism, pretty soon, we're just not even going to talk about the gospel anymore, and I got people over here that are worried that that I'm just not going to go far enough. Some of you are like, Steve, come on, man, take the kid gloves off, and let's go at this thing. Um, and, and here's the thing is, is my goal isn't to make either one of y'all happy. Um, my goal is to unpack a theology of race because I believe that if we have a biblical understanding of, of ethnic diversity, God's plan for it, not just in the future but today, it's going to help us to navigate these tricky waters, these tricky currents with grace. It's going to help us to, to, to not get sucked into the whirlpools of of, of never-ending and unprofitable arguments and 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 it'll help us, equip us, and free us to love people. Um, I have, when I started this sermon series, um, people would ask me, I've had people ask me, and then even since I've started, have people ask me, you know, why? Why, 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 why are you going here? Why are you spending time talking about race? Right, why is this? We know it's culturally relevant. We know this is a huge topic in culture. We know, but, but man, this is the church. Why aren't you just preaching the gospel, right? Why aren't you just preaching the gospel? And generally what they mean by that is why don't you continue to focus on personal forgiveness in Christ, personal growth and grace, personal transformation in, in becoming more like Christ and being changed into the people God wants us to be, right? Um, and, and, and that's all very real and very true, right? That's an important part of, of the gospel. But, but here's the thing. The gospel isn't limited to personal redemption or restoration. The, the gospel is really, really good news for me, but it's not just about me. Right? It, it is also about how I relate to others. It is also about the systems I create with others, the social systems. Right? The good news isn't just good news for me. It's not just the story, my story. It is the story of the world. God is redeeming and restoring not just individuals, but their cultures. He is, he is redeeming and restoring the systems that we create together. And that means that the Bible is both, um, uh, it speaks of and is applicable to not just the individual, but to the social systems that we create together. The Bible isn't silent about issues of race. It just isn't. It isn't silent about issues of, of ethnic diversity, racial unrest, or racial reconciliation, so neither can we right? It's, it's right here. You're going to see that today. I mean, it is right here. So we're going to be laying out a theology of race. In week one, we took a look at the end of the story. We looked at Revelation chapter 7, where we get a prophetic glimpse of he who sits on the throne surrounded by this redeemed body of people worshiping God. And what's remarkable about it is that John says he sees every tribe, every tongue, every skin color, every cultural heritage, every cultural style of dress, every hair texture, every language, right? When God brings His people back together, He doesn't erase their diversity and create an artificial form of unity around language or human culture. There is a true center, and that is Him on the throne, and that allows the diversity to come together in a new form of unity, worshiping God. That's where we're going. That's, that's Revelation 7. That is the future of the church and of this new humanity. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the story. Um, for those of you who, who were here on Saturday nights, you heard it live. If not, hopefully you caught the video with, with Snowpocalypse Part 7, I think we're on now. Um, but but um, we looked at, at the beginning of the story and, and how diversity, the source of diversity, diversity was actually buried as a gift hidden in creation. That God wired into the genetic code of Adam and Eve. A diversity that would have been discovered had they obeyed God. If they, had, if they had obeyed the first command God gave them, which was be fruitful and multiply and spread out and fill the earth. If they had done that, they would have discovered this, this incredibly beautiful gift of diversity. They'd been like, holy cow, look what's happening. This image of God that he gave us continues to amaze us. We discover new and wonderful gifts, and we image God together. Right? This, this diversity that is growing in humanity is this incredible gift that helps us understand the complexity of the beauty of God. But because mankind rebelled against God, Genesis chapter 3, diversity instead of being a gift to be enjoyed became a source of fear, self-protection, alienation, and isolation because we mistrust people who aren't like us. We fear people who aren't like us because the heart of of humanity now isn't love, freedom, grace. It is greed. I need to keep what I have and get more. And if you're a threat to that, I need to build a wall and keep you out. All right? Now, here's the thing, and this is where we're going to go today. Why don't we just wait for Revelation 7? if that's where we're going, if God's promised that's where we're going, and He is going to get us there, and we know where we came from, why do we need to rock the boat today, right? Martin Luther King Jr. once famously said that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. He was right, and, and, and interestingly enough, nothing really has changed in the last 60 years since he said it. 11 a.m. continues to be one of the most segregated hours in American history. The church is one of the most segregated institutions in America. And some of you are like, why is that a problem? If everybody's happy, why is that a problem? Why do we need to rock the boat? Why do we need to make it a problem? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus tore down the wall of hostility between ethnic groups and he didn't tear down that wall so that we would recreate it artificially. He, he didn't die to tear down the wall that divides us so that we would be content with artificial divisions in his body today. Listen, there, there is a, a real challenge to diversity. It's hard. It's hard. To, to become diverse, it means we have to learn to listen to people that aren't like us. We need to understand their story in ways we don't understand it. We need to humble ourselves to be challenged in ways we don't want to be challenged. We need to be willing at times to move into awkward conversations where we find ourselves saying the wrong thing, right? Maybe we hurt people's feelings without even meaning to, and then they tell us we, we have to be humble enough to receive that, and we need, to be, we need to be bold enough to push into it, right? Here's the thing. Diversity is challenging, and diversity is hard. But there's also a tremendous blessing on the other side of the discomfort that God calls us to experience. It's part of the original creation intent, and it is absolutely part of the gospel call today. God is creating one new man, a new humanity that is diverse in its nature. And if God is in the process of creating a diverse one new man, then that means diversity. We can't view diversity today as optional in our experience. Let's take a look at at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, and I hope to unpack this for you. Like I said, this is a, a complex passage, but my hope is over the course of the morning to make sense of this. Starting in verse 11, I'll be reading through verse 22. Follow along in your Bibles. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all, last week we left off Uh, Right after the Tower of Babel, right? So at the Tower of Babel, mankind basically came together and said, we're not going to obey God, right? We are walking in rebellion against God. God wants us to spread out and fill the earth. Eh, We're not going to do that. We're going to stay and we're going to build a monument to our worldliness, a monument to the fact that we can be like God. We don't need God. We'll find our own happiness. We'll find our own purpose. We'll find our own security. We'll find our own pleasure. We will define the boundaries of our own glory. We're going to build this monument to the, to the glory of mankind and our rebellion against God. And God was like, came down because it was so small. He had to make a long trip down to see this giant monument. And, and he's like, you guys, in an act of, of judgment that was an act of grace, he said, I'm going I'm to diversify your languages because you're just going to cause too much pain too much suffering, unified the way you are. And so he diversified the languages, which immediately divided the people, right? They, they immediately found new centers of a cultural identity. So instead of uniting together, they they like, what are you, what are you saying? What are these words, these idiotic words you're uttering? And, and so you, you tended to pull away to, with people that, that, that spoke the same language as you. And as a result of that, they migrated out. They left the, t- the, uh, the tower completely un- unbuilt and, and they left. The monument turned out to be a complete dud. And uh, and they became geographically isolated as they moved out away from each other, which means they also became genetically isolated from one another, which, of course, then unleashed this beautiful gift of diversity. As they became genetically isolated from one another, certain traits became more and more emphasized in certain people groups than in others, and, and ethnic diversity grew as a result. That's where we left off last week. Flash forward in the biblical story and God does something that is um, honestly quite surprising. God shows up, and and in the midst of this growing ethnic diversity, which by the way, is filled with, with, um, so God created race, right? He created a single race of mankind in which there is ethnic diversity. God created race, mankind created racism. And, and so there was a growing mistrust among the ethnic groups. There was a, a growing sense of us and them, a growing hatred of, of people that had different languages, different skin colors, different cultures. God, in the midst of this craziness, does something really unusual. He creates an entirely new ethnic group. He's like, all right, I, I'm going to do something unusual here. So he visits a guy named Abram. Uh, His name means uh, great father. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in Mesopotamia, which is in modern-day Iraq. So he's part of that ethnic group. And he's like, hey, Abram. Walk that way. I am going to create an entirely new ethnic group through you. He changes his name to Abraham, which means a father of a great number, um, and says, look, through you, I'm going to give you a number of descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, like the sand of the seashore. I'm going to give you an inheritance, a land, right? And he didn't just want to give him a strip of land uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. He's like, that's going to expand, man. You're going to inherit the whole world. And the blessing you receive, listen to me, the blessing you receive is going to become a blessing to the entire world. I will bless the whole world through you, Abram. And so Abraham went out and had Isaac and, well, Sarah had Isaac. Abram was part of it. Um, Isaac had Jacob. Again, you get what I'm saying. Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel was the father of 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. God created an entirely new ethnic group, the Jewish people. Now, why in a world of ethnic diversity where ethnicity was already a source of tremendous trouble and difficulty, would he create one more ethnic group and add it to the mix? We'll explain that in a minute. But here's the thing. This ethnic group was unique because God's relationship with them was based from the very beginning on a series of covenants unconditional covenants of promise and a key conditional uh, uh, covenant of laws. We're going to unpack, but, but the difference is they're unconditional and conditional. A covenant of promise is unconditional. When God makes a covenant of promise, He's the only one obligated. So, He's entering into an agreement, and, and He's the only one who's on the hook to actually do something, right? God has related with humankind through a series of unconditional covenants from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents rebelled against God, as God is is explaining uh, what they just did, the consequences of their great rebellion buried in that chapter, in the midst before the, the dust of their rebellion has even settled, He makes the very first covenant of promise. He says, I will send a seed of the woman. Eve will have a son. And he will crush the serpent's head even though the serpent bruises his heel. Right there at the very beginning of the story, he promises, he promises that he will send a hero who who will confront our deepest problem, our greatest enemy. And even though it comes at great personal cost, he will win us a victory we desperately need, right? And then he shows up many, many years later to Abram and he makes a covenant of promise, right with with Abram who becomes Abraham he, he says look i'm i'm going to give you uh, i'm going to make you the father of a great nation and 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 i am going to bless your children and through your children i'm going to bless the whole world right and and, and this covenant is unique because it has a sign attached to it god said there is a sign so so every son who was born in the line of of covenant uh, was circumcised that's the covenant the, the sign of the abrahamic covenant uh, which, which circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin from the penis, and so every son who was born as a genetic, genetically in the line, bore this sign, which was unique in the ancient world, and it was their way of saying, "Look, I'm in, I'm, I'm in the line, I'm, I'm in the covenant, I'm an inheritant of this covenant of promise. I am, I am a child of Abraham." Then many years later, one of the children of Abraham, named David, becomes one of the greatest kings of Israel. And God shows up to David, and he says to David, I'm going to give you a son, and that son will sit on the throne of Israel forever. He will be a ruler in righteousness, unsurpassed. I will bless your son, and through him, I will bless the whole world. Covenants of promise. See, here's the thing. Israel was God's elect nation, God's chosen ethnic group. He created them, right? He's like, I'm not going to be without witness on the earth. I'm going to create an ethnic group, and that ethnic group is going to be mine. They they are going to be mine. They're my elect nation. Now, we start talking about election, some people tend to get hinky. Like, election why, why would God elect some people to blessing and, and not elect other people, and God's not fair, and I don't like elections, so I don't even like to use the word. And, and here's the thing, it's a complicated topic, but it might help if you think about it differently. Leslie Newbigin, who is one of the most profound missiologists in the modern um, church world, once defined uh, election in a way that profoundly impacted me. He said, he said election is not God choosing people to privilege. It's God choosing people to responsibility. When God elects somebody, He doesn't elect them to simply receive a blessing. He elects them to be a blessing. They receive a blessing that they are then responsible then to carry out and share with others. Israel was God's elect nation. To, they were elect to receive a blessing and then carry that blessing out to others. Now, when you look at biblical history, what we find is that Israel didn't do an incredibly good job at this. Israel, instead of becoming a blessing to the surrounding nations, uh, ended up developing uh, a lot of pride, internal pride. There was a very, very strong sense of us versus them. Um, they looked at themselves as the elect chosen ethnicity of God, and all the other nations were dogs. They looked down on them. They despised them. They... they, they um, Um, they did not carry out the purpose of their election. Now, before we get too judgmental of the Jewish people, um, they were very simply doing what we all do. There's a brokenness within us that makes us very, very prideful and selfish. We want to receive the blessing, keep it for ourselves and get more. I want to keep what I have and get more. Keep what I have and get more. And I want to judge people who don't have as much as me as somehow not as worthy as I am because obviously I had more than they did. That means I'm more worthy than they were. Right? We all do it. They were very simply working out of this broken worldliness that plagues all of our hearts of pride and greed. Right? But here's what's wonderful about this, y'all. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, which means even if Israel refused To do what they were supposed to do, God was still going to give what God was going to give. He said, I will bless you, and through you, I will bless the world. That was unconditional, which means Israel couldn't derail it. God was going to bless the world through them, whether they were willing participants or not. See, eventually, the seed of the woman came, the son of Eve, the son of Abraham. The son of David was born, and his name was Jesus. And while the the ethnic diversity of the world continued to spread out over the face of the planet, God, through this series of covenants, narrowed the focus down to a single hero who would be born on mission. God would bless the world, and he did through Christ, the Jewish son of David, of Abraham, and ultimately the son of Eve. He was the fulfillment of those promises. All of those covenants of promise find their fulfillment in Christ and find the unleashing of their blessing in Christ. The Jews were elect, and the Gentiles would be blessed through them and were. Now, Gentiles, isn't that a funny word? I'm guessing, you know, you read that word in the Bible, I'm guessing you don't use it in your workplace a lot. You know, like, hey, how y'all doing, Gentiles, right? I mean, it's not, not a word we use widely. And I think most of us honestly don't even know what it means. Um, the word Gentiles, sometimes translated nations, is the Greek word ethnos. Does that sound familiar? It's the same root from which we get ethnicity, right? So, so what this word Gentiles means is every other ethnic group except God's chosen ethnic group, the Jews, right? God elect the Jews, that ethnicity. So so God himself looks at the world in ethnic terms. Are you catching that? He looks and he sees a diversity of ethnicities. He just divides it up differently than we do. We look at it from my ethnicity and everybody else's. God looks at it and says, well, there's the ethnicity I created and then there's all the others. There's the Irish and there's the Chinese and there's the Africans and all those other ethnic groups are are Gentiles, right? Right? This is what Paul's getting at. So that's the stage. Look at verse 11 and 12. Let me you see this? Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that means those of you who were born from ethnic groups outside of Israel, called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, you were looked down on by God's elect people. You, you, they would use this derisive term to describe you as the uncircumcision, which was made in the flesh by hands. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time, before Christ came, separated from Christ. See, Christ was promised through the prophets to God's chosen and elect ethnic group, the Jews. Christ, the word Christ isn't Jesus' last name. I don't know if you know that. Um, Christ is a word that means Messiah. Literally, it means anointed one or elect one. Jesus is the elect one because he was given not only the greatest privilege of carrying the blessing of God, but the greatest responsibility of then spreading that blessing to others. He was anointed, he was chosen, he was elect to carry that blessing to others. But during this point in in redemptive history, because the promises were coming to the nation of Israel, Remember, at that time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside the ethnic group that had the scriptures and the prophets and, the, and, and, the, and God revealing himself, this commonwealth of, of, of this ethnic group's racial history, right? And you were strangers to the covenants of promise because they were made progressively more and more narrow within this specific group. And as a result, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. If the blessing had remained bound to a single ethnic group, we'd be hopeless. If Christ came as a son of the Jews and only worked ethnically for his tribe, his heritage, his history, we would be without God in the world. That means we would be abandoned to our self-salvation projects. All those things that we do to try to make ourselves significant or secure or important or loved, and they all are broken and none of them work. That would be our best hope in the world. And by the time we lived our miserable lives and died, we'd still have to go before a God and be accountable for our cosmic treason and rebellion against him. Without a mediator, without a savior, without one to vouch for us without hope, without God in the world. But that was never God's intention. God's intention in election was never to to exclude the blessing specifically to the Jewish people, to the restriction of other ethnicities. He he elected them to prepare the way for the the elect one who would actually unleash the blessing to everyone, the one who would come and tear down the walls and throw open the gates that all can draw near. Take a look at verse 13. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were far off. Metaphorical language that indicates that we were far away from the blessing. We were far away from the covenants. Um, Listen, Israel wasn't just given a series of, of covenants of promise. They were also given a covenant of law. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Law or the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the one who was kind of the go-between on it. Uh, I'm sure you've, you're, you're biblically literate. You've seen Charlton Heston coming down from the mountain, you know, with the two tablets with the Ten Commandments carved on it. Um, essentially what happened there is God showed up to the nation of Israel and said, hey, y'all, would you, would you like a, a special blessing? If so, I'm going to give you a law. You just have to keep it, and if you break it, you'll get a curse. And they were like, yeah, we're in. We're God's elect people. We're totally in with that, right? Look at it. That's what it says, Exodus 19. Um, and, and so God's like, all right, here. Here's, here's the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments of the down payment of the law. Now, what you may not realize is the Ten Commandments are just a tiny, tiny part of it. There are 613 commands in the Mosaic Covenant that govern every aspect of, of, of Jewish behavior, what they eat, when they eat, how they eat, what they wear, how they do business, who they do business with, when they work, when they rest, what they look like, what they sound like. And the end result of this is, is this ended up making Israel weird. Like literally, wherever they went in the ancient world, they wouldn't assimilate to the surrounding cultures. They didn't dress like other people. They didn't use the common language of the people they moved into. They didn't, do the com- they didn't honor the common business practices. They were, they were stubbornly different in their ethnic identity because the law created a wall around them. A wall that created a very, very strong sense of us and a very, very strong sense of them. And as a result, they were a despised people. Wherever they went, people just, they just were annoying. They were despised because they wouldn't assimilate. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't adapt. They wouldn't honor common customs. They, and, and, and they were doggedly prideful in it right not only would they not adapt they would call them the uncircumcision and the dogs right there was a there was a hostility that was that was instilled in them as a result of this now listen the law didn't create this problem the law just highlighted it there were already ethnic divisions there was already ethnic mistrust there was already a sense of us and them the law came in and simply made it more obvious It was like putting a magnifying glass on a problem that already existed. God didn't create the problem. The law simply exaggerated the problem to the point where it couldn't be ignored. It was so obvious, right? And then in the temple itself, that sense of the wall was actually reinforced. If you came to the temple to worship Yahweh, there was a series of walls around the temple. If you were a Gentile who wanted to worship Yahweh, you could come to the court of the Gentiles, but you couldn't pass through what was called the beautiful gate into the inner courts of the Jews. So if you wanted to worship Yahweh, you could come near, but not very near. The Jewish people could pass through the beautiful gate into the inner courtyards. Now, even they were barricaded by walls. There were inner courtyards there, and and they were separated, right? The Jewish people could only go so far, and then then the Levites could go into the center courtyard. And even then, only the high priest could go into the very Holy of Holies, where the kind of glory of God's presence dwelt. Did God advised the temple be built like this because he wanted to keep people away no god didn't create the separation he was simply making the separation obvious you who were far off have been brought near right look at verses 14 through 16 for he himself christ whose blood has been shed on the cross for he himself is our peace who has made us both, here talking about Jews and Gentiles, all ethnic diversity, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, we are brought near because he is our peace. On the cross, he made peace for us. Listen, the gospel is both profoundly personal and profoundly social in its implications. But it begins personally. And then it works its way out socially. See, Jesus begins first as my peace. Because he first reconciles me to God. I was far off. I was outside the circle of blessing. I was guilty of cosmic treason. And he became My peace. You know, if you think about the temple with the courtyards and the walls separating the worshipers from his presence, that wasn't God saying, stay away. That was God saying, come near. Look, I'm here, and I want you near me. But you can only come so near because there is something in you that will betray you. There is something in you, a worldliness, a rebellion that will lead you to be destroyed in my presence. Think about it. Worldliness is the desire to do life apart from God, to find the blessing of God apart from the God who gives it, to compete with God and be like God. I want to dethrone God and sit on His throne. I want to mark my glory. I want to make my decisions. I want to determine my pleasures. I want to do my life my way. That is a a restless evil in every heart. That means I'm not only guilty of cosmic treason in the past, I am actively working for it in the presence. And if that problem isn't fixed, you allow me to come into the very presence of God. It's like bringing dry kindling into the presence of a raging fire that unholiness would be consumed by His righteous holiness. We are incompatible with the presence of God because we will not stop competing and trying to dethrone Him. The temple was God's way of saying, I want you to draw near, but right now you can't. My very presence would destroy you. Someone needs to come and be your peace. Somebody needs to come and cleanse you set you free. The law. Why did God give the law to Israel? Do you think it was like this big experiment? Like, look at all these humans with their funny self-salvation projects. Let's give them the law, the perfect tool, and see if they can actually get it right. What do you think? What do you think? Maybe the problem is the tool. Well, give them the perfect tool, the holy law of God, the perfect set of rules. Just obey these, and you'll finally earn the blessing of God. You'll finally get the fullness of life apart from the presence of God who gives it. Yeah, I don't think this was an experiment on God's part. This was God's way of saying, look, y'all, even if I give you a perfect tool, you're going to turn it into a wicked weapon. Right? Even if even if all of your your little religion projects, your self-improvement projects, your, I'm gonna here's the perfect one. And you're gonna use it into a tool that'll that'll puff up your pride and become a wicked weapon to degrade and abuse others. The law didn't cause the problem. The law was good and holy, righteous. The problem is our hearts the law simply acted as a magnifying glass to make to make obviously clear in our rebellious state we are condemned to abuse ourselves and abuse others betrayed by the impulses the wicked impulses of our own hearts See, God had wanted us to see our desperate need. God wanted us as Jews and Gentiles to recognize we were far from Him, unable to bridge the gap back to Him. We couldn't fix this. We couldn't become moral enough. We couldn't become sensitive enough. We couldn't, we couldn't become humble enough. We couldn't become woke enough. We couldn't. We couldn't. It's a hopeless task. We were outside, alienated, helpless to help ourselves and without God in the world. But Christ came to be our peace, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by His blood on the cross. Jesus lived the life I should have lived. And then He died the death I deserve to die. And then He rose again. victory over my sin. He was my substitute in judgment so that I could become his partner in blessing. He was born a Jewish man under the law, and he perfectly fulfilled the law. The only Jewish man ever to fulfill that conditional contract. And he earned its blessing, but then he died under its curse. Why? So that he could then, as God's elect, give that blessing away. He stepped into the holy fire of judgment that I deserved in my place and my sin that I might be at peace with God. He is my peace. The gospel is profoundly personal because I am reconciled to God. But I am not reconciled to God alone. It is not just about me. I am reconciled to God with a group of others who are also at peace with God and now at peace with one another. God didn't just tear down the dividing wall between me and Him. He tore down the dividing wall between the ethnicities. He broke down the walls that separated me from my neighbor, that I might love my neighbor even as I love myself. He made the two one. He tore down the ethnic walls of mistrust and fear. He took Jews and Gentiles, every ethnic group, and made one new humanity. Because on the cross, he killed the hostility. When he died, he killed the hostility. He crushed the serpent's head, even though it bruised his heel. And he killed the hostility and the mistrust and the animosity that was created from our rebellion against God and he gave us a new center for our identity. My, my center, who I am, I'm no longer bound by my language or my nationality or, or my skin color or my gender or my dress or my politics. I am bound by grace. I'm part of a new humanity at peace with God no longer in competition with one another. Take a look quickly at verses 17 through 22 because I want you to see there are three metaphors here that that are really, really powerful. Um, Starting in verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, that's us Gentiles, and to those who are near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The wall's been torn down. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So not only are we a new humanity, we're a new family. Right? Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the commonwealth of Israel. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. For God by the Spirit, God doesn't dwell in a building behind walls anymore. That third metaphor, man, we, the followers of Christ, the, the church of God, are being built into a holy temple in which God dwells by the Spirit. We are a new humanity. We are a new family. We are the actual temple of the living God in which the walls have been torn down. That's what God's doing right now, y'all. Right? That's what he's doing right now. He is growing this new humanity. He is growing this new family. He is building this one temple in which his glory dwells. Right? Revelation 7 is a prophetic glimpse of of, of it in its fullness when Christ returns, but he's doing it now. We can't just sit around and wait for God to do something he's already doing. We can't check out and say, yeah, God's doing that thing, but I don't think I'm going to be involved. Yeah, the gospel's personal, but it works its way out socially in the way we relate to others and the systems we create together. It will impact how we view ourselves and by its very nature impact the way we relate to others. So three closing points quickly. First, our primary identity needs to be centered on Christ, who is our peace. Our primary identity, who I see myself to be, who I am, needs to be centered on Christ, who is our peace. You guys, this is the single most important thing about me. I am Christ's. And He is mine. That is the single most important thing about me. He is my peace. And I am His redeemed. This is more important than the color of my skin. This is more important than my family history, my cultural subgroup, my socioeconomic status, my political convictions. This is the most important thing about me. I am Christ's. And as a result, I am part of the new humanity that He is creating. I am part of the new family He is forming. I am part of the new temple He is building. This needs to be the core of my identity, the most important thing I know about myself, the center of who I am. Listen to me. If I have more in common with others who share my skin color, than I do with others who love my Savior, I am sinfully off-center. If I have more in common with others who share my socioeconomic bracket and educational experience than I do with others who love my Savior, I am sinfully off-center. If I have more in common with others who share my political convictions than I do with others who love my Savior, I am sinfully off-center. What could be more important about me? What hope could I have that is more compelling than that He is my peace? He is my hope. He is my joy. He is mine and I am His. Anything we put at the center above Him is an idol. Secondly, our primary identity in Christ does not erase our secondary ethnic identity. Even though my primary identity is one one who is, is, is loved by God Elect by God, saved by God, made peace with God and with others by the work of Christ by His cross, right? Even though that is my primary identity, it does not erase my secondary ethnic identity. It doesn't erase my personal experience, my ethnic experience, my, my unique experience of what it means to do life in this world, right? God's purpose in uniting us is not to erase the ethnic diversity, It is to redeem it and restore it so that it's no longer a source of conflict and pride and fear. It's popular in some circles today to try to become colorblind, to try to live out that old metaphor that we're in a melting pot, you know, and and in a melting pot we're all, you know, we're all just Americans. We're just Americans. We're all Americans. I don't see color. I've had people tell me, I don't see color. I just see Americans. what's interesting is I've only had white people say that to me. I've never had people of color say, I don't see color. You know why? Because for most people of color, they're reminded every single day of their color. We have the privilege of not paying attention as white people because we're not always treated in the same way. Now, that doesn't mean every African American has the same experience as every other African American because no single African American can speak for the entire African American experience or community. Any more than any one white person can speak for the experience and ethnic, ex- ethnic uh, uh, heritage of all white people, right? There's a diversity even in the diversity, but my point is this, that, that, that most of my, my, peop- my friends who are people of color, most of my African American friends would never think of saying this. When I was a punk, <laughs> still am. When I was a punk and, 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 and was out just raising hell, um, shoplifting, skateboarding, destroying things, um, um, tearing down the world because I was angry and lost. Um, I had a group of friends that I did it with, and, and, and like I remember shoplifting, and, and man, I walked out with a giant bottle of polo like this large, man. It was huge. Um, my African-American friend gets nabbed by security. I don't think anything about it. I'm just faster. I'm better, you know? Sneakier. It wasn't until later that I, that I found out from, from other African-American friends who weren't punks like me that they regularly get followed by security when they go through a store, that even though they're there with the best of intentions, they're completely honest. They would never think of shoplifting. They've been stopped and had their bags searched. Their experience is fundamentally different than mine. I would just assume their experience was exactly like mine unless I was humble enough to listen and learn that their experience is different, right? When my African-American friends talk about having the talk with their kids, it's really, really different than what most white people talk about, right? We talk about having the talk with our kids. We're usually like, oh, that awkward talk about the birds and the bees and, and, you know, safe stuff and, you know my African-American friends talk about having the talk, especially with their sons, especially if their sons are large. The talk is you can't go out and do what your other friends do. You can't go into white spaces and do the things white people do because you'll be treated differently. The consequences will be different. If you ever get pulled over, you make sure your hands are on the wheel. It is, yes, sir, you speak respectfully no matter how you're spoken to. You never provoke, and you never allow yourself to be provoked. Otherwise, bad things will happen to you. That's the talk. My friend who's a pastor has a Mexican-American on staff, a pastoral. He's a pastor, Mexican-American. And yet he is continually... Just people assume that he's, he's part of the maintenance crew. He's been asked for his papers. He's a pastor on staff. Listen, it is not helpful to say that you're colorblind when color plays such a powerful role in the American experience. See, when we say we're colorblind, what we're really saying is, I don't see you. I'm not going to see your unique experience. I'm not going to acknowledge that your experience in America and even in the church could be fundamentally different from mine. You need to adopt my narrative, or I don't see you. It is is dehumanizing, and it is minimizing of other people's story and their pain. Listen, the goal isn't to become colorblind. It is to become humble enough to listen to and learn from other people's experience. To value them. To create space for them. To honor them. Because we value them when we value their stories. And listen, y'all, we can't love people we don't see. We can't obey the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can't do it. Third, Our identity as God's elect should push us out in love to those different from us. All right, if you're a believer in Christ, I don't care whether you like it or not, the Bible says you're elect. That's a thing. What that means is you haven't been chosen for a privilege. You have been chosen for a responsibility. Your election isn't about the blessing you receive. Your election is about the blessing that has been given to you that you are to carry and give to others. You weren't elected by God to privilege. You were elected to responsibility. You weren't just reconciled to God so that you can enjoy your reconciliation. You were reconciled to God so that according to 2 Corinthians 5, you might become a minister of reconciliation. To carry that reconciliation out, to live it out in in social contexts, to, to become the embodiment of grace. You received grace that you might carry it out as a minister of reconciliation. You are, according to 2 Corinthians 5, an ambassador for Christ, an official representative of the gospel. If you have received the gospel, this is the responsibility that is put on you. I've had people say, well, Steve, that's, that's, that's about evangelism. We're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ, carrying the gospel out to people that are far from God and don't know the gospel. And I would respectfully but adamantly say, read your Bible. 2 Corinthians 5 is not written in an evangelistic context. It is written to a church in which people are not getting along. They have stopped seeing each other and understanding each other and loving each other and left to their own devices, they would split and divide and create little happy camps completely separated and isolated from each other. And Paul says, that's not an option. That is not an option, not for those who have received reconciliation. You are ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. We, in our worldliness, will become competitive, comparative. We will tear each other down. We will want to isolate and, and, and to just be around people that look like us and sound like us and make us comfortable with us. But when we do that, we are swimming against the stream of God's redemptive current. We are rejecting the responsibility of our election. We are setting down the mantle of peacemakers a mantle we don't have the freedom to set down because it was given to us as part of the blessing of having Christ as our peace. Listen, y'all, we should value ethnic diversity because it is the gift of the Imago Day in creation. For us to fully understand the love of God, we have to learn how to love people that are not like us, who have different experiences from us, that see the world in ways that we don't necessarily understand and may be challenging and humbling to us. For us to grow in our understanding of God, we need to grow in our experience of the image of God. We are impoverished when we settle for less. God is building a new humanity. He is building a new family. He is constructing a living temple. And we should crave an increased experience of that blessing. For God's glory and for our good, so that the gospel's power can be demonstrated today in this culture in a way that our culture desperately needs. Right now, the church is failing. Our culture needs an example of genuine racial diversity united, not around a common center of political ideology or racial identity but around a center of grace, around a center of He who sits on the throne, people that are undone by grace and remade in love. We have an opportunity to be a city. Within a city, a light set on a hill, salt and light to a culture desperately in need. of have an example of how to do this in a way that doesn't lead to further pain destruction suffering and alienation. I'm going to close us in prayer. Next week Aaron's going to return and he's going to be leading us through a look at a look at the early church, one of the most the first and one of the most diverse churches in in honestly in, in history and talking about the unique challenges they faced and how that informs the challenges we face today. Let me close us in prayer. Father, thank you. You love us. But even though we rebelled against you and, and wanted to replace you, we wanted to live for our glory, wanted to live on our terms, we, we wanted to pretend like we could just use your gifts <laughs> like we were you without actually needing you. Lord, in your humility and in your glorious love, you didn't let us go. You committed yourself to to solving our problem. You committed yourself to becoming our hero, to doing the unthinkable. That God might become flesh and dwell among us so that he can undo what we did, so that he could suffer the consequences we had incurred that he might bring us into a blessing we could never earn. Man, will you undo our pride? Will you humble our hearts? Will you free us into the joy of gratitude knowing that you, Lord Jesus, are our peace? And in that joy, might, might we be freed into the, the humility of seeing people instead of seeing problems, of, of listening to stories without being defensive, without, without, without pulling back into our, our false centers, where people look like us and sound like us and comfort us because somehow we're better than others. Man, we, Lord, would we reject an unbiblical paradigm, an unbiblical center for who we are? Spirit, you're the only one that can do this, and we know you will. It's an unconditional covenant. You're going to do it. Romans, Revelation 7 is a thing, man. We're, we're going there, but we want to taste it now. We want to taste some of that blessing now. Spirit, will you do that? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.